Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. You, thanks for braving the, the drizzle and the fog this morning. You picked a good day to be in church. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with my message, but I wanted to share a story with you, and I have the mic, so you're going to listen. This past week was an incredible week for the Bolt household. See, our oldest son, Crosley, he's about four and a half. He's going to be five here in just a couple months. And he started to ask very pointed questions about who God is, who Jesus is. And so Heidi and I have been very intentional about having age-appropriate conversations with him. And this week, as I was downstairs in the basement going through my message on Thursday, Heidi opens the basement door and she whispers down, she says, hey, hun, you're going to want to come be a part of this. And so I stopped what I was doing and came upstairs, made my way up to the bedroom. And when I got up there, Crosley's on the bed. And he's got kind of this slightly embarrassed, slightly cheesy, slightly giddy expression on his face, which he gets from me because when attention's on me, I get very uncomfortable and I (laughs) laugh and it's a nervous thing. And so he's laying on the bed. And uh, he had come up to Heidi and said, hey, mom, I want to talk to you about something. And of course, in four-year-old brain, Heidi had to proceed to guess what it is that he wanted to talk about. But finally, it came out that he wanted to have a conversation about what it looked like to accept Jesus. And so Heidi and I get upstairs. We sit down on the bed with him and we have a conversation about what it looks like. We talk to him about how important it is and, and how it'll change his life and After a few minutes of talking through it, we all three get down on the floor, kneel beside the bed, and Crosley was able to pray and accept Jesus into his life at four and a half years of age. And it was an incredible moment for us because as parents, it's something that honestly is very important to us. And and it'll be important for him in years to come because hopefully my prayer, and I know Heidi's prayer is, is that that day will not only transcend his life, but his kid's life and his kid's kid's life and so on and so forth. And so Heidi did an incredible job. The next day, you may think this is kind of silly, but we like it. It's um, the fact that we like to celebrate our physical birthdays, but as importantly, we like to celebrate our spiritual birthdays. So the next day, Heidi took Crosley and they got birthday balloons and a birthday hat and they went to Chick-fil-A with their best friends, the Taves, and hung out and we just had a great day. And so... My prayer is, is, is that as you as parents, if you're parents here or you plan on being parents, that you as well focus on what's really important and how you can ultimately change your children's life and a whole generation um, by teaching them about who Jesus is. Amen, right? So today, we're going to talk about the human brain. The human brain. There it is. Beautiful, isn't it? A three-pound, 140-millimeter-long, gelatinous ball of spirituality, knowledge, and consciousness. It's full of billions of neurons that provide connectivity, that teach you how to do all the things that you do. And it's a complex organism of carbon all strung together, sitting on top of a perfectly architected body full of bones, muscle tissue, and connective tissue. Everything that you have known, currently know, or ever will know is stored in the human brain. From the most basic functions like 
things that you don't even think about, blinking and breathing, going to the bathroom, to the most complex computations that the human brain has ever been able to accomplish. It's all done right up here. Think of it this way. This is how miraculous the human brain is. The human brain has figured out how to fix itself. Think of anything else in the world that's like this. There's nothing like it. The human brain through the modern through the miracle of modern medicine has figured out how to see that something broken and fix it through surgery. There's nothing else like it in the world. And yet artificial intelligence, computer brains are still years away. Yes, they can do some brute force computations that we simply can't do to the magnitude. But the reality is, is that artificial intelligence, self-awareness, which is kind of the, the goal for artificial intelligence, is still just a pipe dream. We're not even close to being able to accomplish this. And even though it only weighs three pounds, the human brain can store 2.5 petabytes of data. Now, if you don't sell computers like I do, you have no idea how much a petabyte is. So I'll give you some constructs so that you know how much data this is. If your brain was a DVR and you hit record, it would record 3 million hours of video. To give you more data here, that is if you set your TV on, set your DVR on, and let your TV record for 300 years straight, 24-7, 365. That's roughly 2.5 petabytes of data. And yet, even with all this information that we know through things like MRIs, CAT scans, PET scans, e EKG, or excuse me, EEG scans, don't crucify me, Isaac, <laughs> we still don't know much about how the brain works. Specifically, what we don't know is where abstract things like morality, spirituality, self-awareness come from. We have no idea. We, we kind of know, but at best, they're guesses. And so, here in the human brain, in this gray, twisted collection of proteins and neurons, there's a part of the brain called the parietal lobe. And the parietal lobe became the focus for scientists not too long ago because what they were asking was this question. How is it that in today's day and age where we have technology and physics and science and all these things that we know, that humans still, by the billions, still believe in God? Why is that? You would think that based on media that people are just abandoning God left and right, but the opposite is true. And so scientists started to ask the question, maybe it's not that parents are teaching their children about Jesus and so on and so forth, and it's just this reoccurring thing. Maybe we are hardwired to believe in God. Maybe there's something in the brain that we should be looking for that we haven't seen before. And so neuroscientists started focusing in on this area, the, the parietal lobe. And what happened was initially they started to look and they go, Man, I think, we think, as a, as a collective, that maybe that there's something there. Maybe in the brain, there is, at the very basic level, a belief in God. And so as they started to look and do more tests and studies, they actually determined that it's not just a single area of the brain, but it's actually multiple areas of the brain 
work together for a belief in God. And so they affectionately named this area or collection of areas in the brain the God brain. So today we're going to be talking in a new series called Brain Games. We're going to be talking about nerdy and sciencey stuff, which is what I'm all about. If you come over to my house, my idea of a peaceful night at home is coffee on the couch with my wife and kids. And if I'm not watching the Outdoor Channel, I'm watching Discovery Channel or the History Channel or National Geographic. I'm a nerd. I wasted my time in school not paying attention, and so now I'm catching up, I guess. <laughs> and if you're not into those things, if, if that sounds absolutely awful to you, well, I tell you what, pay attention. Maybe you'll learn something, and it'll be, it'll be good for you to hear what we're going to talk about. So the God brain. The God brain is, what, like I said, a thought that there are collections or regions of the brain that are purpose-built at the core level for a belief in God. Psychologists, physiologists, neuropsychologists, behaviorists, all of these people are coming together and they're going, where do things like morality, spirituality, self-awareness, which by the way, we're the only animal on the planet with the level of self-awareness that we have. There are other animals that we speculate might be self-aware. And when I say self-aware, what I mean is you understand what happens to you happens at a level beyond just, I'm going to get hurt, for example. Um, it's a, it's a, the idea that you exist as part of a fabric outside of just yourself. So where do things like morality, spirituality, um, collective nature, and so on and so forth come from? Is it a part of the brain? Is it parts of the brain? And if so, how do we pinpoint that? And how do, how do we look at that? And so historically, science and faith have not crossed paths. They've tried to stay far apart from each other. At the beginning of science, and most people know this, but some don't, science started off as a religion, so to speak. It was, it was the pillars of faith that actually started looking into science because they saw that much of what was in the Bible was reflected in the natural world. And then just in the past few decades, they've somewhat diverted past. But now, as we start to study the God brain, these areas are coming together. Science and faith are starting to collide in an area that they have historically not collided in. But I think it warrants some clarification on science. You see, science, by its very nature, observes something and then tries to understand what that observation was. So you might think back to elementary school, right? The, the scientific method, or maybe you're teaching kids at home and you're going through the scientific method. An observation, a hypothesis of why that occurs, and then either testing to affirm that observation or more observations that affirm the original observation. And so science, by its very nature, can only measure what it can observe. And faith is the things unseen. Faith can't be measured by the tools that we have in science. And so historically, faith and science have been mutually exclusive. But now with the God brain, they're coming together. They're having to kind of wrestle and figure out how each piece dovetails into the other. And they're stepping on each other's toes and they're figuring out that maybe there's something more to this God brain than even we initially thought. 
So with science, we can only observe what, or excuse me, we can only measure what we have observed. And so just like in the video that we watched at the beginning here, the Rubik's Cubes were all scattered apart. And they were all in a mess and they looked chaotic and there was no order or purpose to them. And then as the video goes along, the view changes. And as the view changed, the perspective changed. And as the perspective changed, all of a sudden, the cubes all of a sudden fell into order and they made sense. The perspective has to be right in order for it to make sense. And that it is with science. Our perspective in science can never be correct. Let me give you an example. This is a, a metaphor that I thought of and it's the best I could come up with, so forgive me. But with science as it is, we are in the painting. We are in the painting. We are the object of the painting. And so our perspective when we're trying to see other parts of the painting is narrow. We can never have the perspective of the artist who painted the picture. And so our view, our perspective is narrow. And so as we observe things, we're never able to observe from the proper perspective. We're always trying to observe from within the context of our own painting. And so it is that God is the master of his creation. He has created the painting. He has the proper perspective. And we will be benefit as we understand that our perspective can never be perfect. Again, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I love science. I love mathematics. I truly, truly, truly believe that science and mathematics and physics and astronomy are the languages with which God speaks to his creation. We are simply seeing a minute part of what God has done and we're trying to understand a language so complex that we are sounding out one and two letter words. We don't even begin to have the full language under control. What I believe, and this is my own belief, is, is that the God brain, the study of this area of conflicts of science and religion is just one of the first steps where science is going to affirm God. Science is going to eventually have just enough perspective that they're going to say, in fact, yes, you guys were right all along. And as we research more and see more, this will become true. So over the years, when I was first a Christian, my idea of being a good Christian, probably like a lot of people, was attend church as, regular, as regularly as possible, give where I could, serve where I could. But then over the course of years, my perspective on what it meant to be a Christ follower changed. And as it started to change, I started to realize that one of the things that I wasn't doing and that I was called to do was to tell people about Jesus. That's what we're all called to do. And so when I first came to this realization, the very first thing that I thought was the same thing that probably many of you thought, uh, think or did, thought or did think, which was, I don't know enough about the Bible to tell people about Jesus. And then, after I kind of got over that obstacle, I thought, man, telling people about Jesus like strangers is, is kind of weird, right? Well, after I got over that hurdle, my faith became 
began to get more bold. And as I started to realize that I was free in telling people about Jesus, it got even more bold. And as I started to evolve in my spirituality and my walk with Jesus, I started to tell friends who didn't know Jesus about Jesus. And, I, and then I started to tell co-workers about Jesus that didn't know Jesus. And I haven't quite mastered the total and utter stranger conversation, but we'll get there. And as I was evaluating and kind of having these conversations with people about what it meant to know Jesus, I started to kind of realize that people fell into two categories. Now, this is me painting with a, a very wide brush, and so forgive me, but generally people fall into one or two categories from a personality standpoint. They are either generally emotional people or they are generally analytical people. Now, there's spillover and there's a few of us who are pretty well-rounded and maybe have a little bit of both, but generally you're mostly emotional with a little bit of analytical or mostly analytical with a little bit of emotion. And as I was sharing Jesus with these two different types of people, I started to realize that the context and the angle with which you share the gospel with these two different types of people has to vary. The emotional person and I'm in sales, so the emotional person is, let's face it, an easy sell. <laughs> the emotional person, sharing Jesus with an emotional person, really isn't that difficult. And I started to think about what it's like to share Jesus with an emotional person. And if you've done this, you know this to be true. It pretty much goes like this. I'll give you an example. Me. You know you need Jesus, right? All of a sudden, you say that and they start crying. Tears are welling up. Snot starts coming out. Face starts getting red. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's the holdup? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know. And there's just snots everywhere. And it's just this big hot mess. And then you go, you know, all you have to do is accept Jesus, ask him for forgiveness, and tell them that he is your Lord and Savior life, and it's all done with. And then at that point, it's just everywhere. There's snot everywhere. There's crying, and there's weeping, and they finally accept it. And then you go, good, my job is done here, and you move on to the next person. <laughs> that, is, that is the emotional person salvation. And I can make that joke because as a mostly analytical person, that was my experience accepting Jesus. I'm not one to cry. And I'm definitely not one to get overly emotional. But there's something about what happens in the heart of a person when they realize that life is not all about them anymore. On the other hand, though, is the analytical person. And the analytical person, you can say to that person, hey, you know you need Jesus, right? He loves you. And that person goes, okay. They need facts and they need data. And they need to see things in front of them that affirm the observations that they've made in life. And just saying to them, hey, God loves you, rarely, if ever, converts them over to a son or daughter of God. So with an analytical person, it often requires a bit more selling, a bit more convincing. The analytical person needs to see data points. The analytical person needs to understand all the facts before they make a decision. And so today, that is what we're going to do. 
Today, we're going to attempt to explain the existence of God through data points. I know that may not sound sexy to you, (laughs) but for some people, it's desperately needed. For some people, the only way that they're ever going to believe in God is to see the data in front of them. And so today, we are going to do some math. (laughs) Math and saying the phrase, this is math, is easily one of the scariest phrases in the human language. (laughs) Think back to when you were in school. Math class, I hated math. Mostly because I can't do math that well. But what I do love about math is the definitive nature of math. You can't argue with math. Math is definitive. It is conclusive. If you're having an argument with somebody and you do the math, so to speak, and show them where they're wrong, the conversation's over. You can't argue with it. 1 plus 1 is 2, and 2 plus 2 is 4. Regardless of the circumstances, it's always the same. And that's what's beautiful about math. Unless, of course, you do common core math, and I can't help you with that. (laughs) It's definitive in nature. Math is one of those things that, especially high-level math, is it, it, it borders on almost a religion. And I mean that, hear me when I say that. It, it's so beautiful in nature, the way that math every time can give you the same outcome no matter what. And so if you're analytical, or maybe you just struggle with the belief in God because the data points are missing, or maybe you're in the fields of science or technology or medicine, and you've often heard that there is no such thing as God and that we're all just here by random chance, today is for you. Pay attention and listen because what we're going to do is we're going to go through some simple math. We're going to go through some unbelievably complex probabilities. And at the conclusion, I think it's going to be completely and utterly undeniable that our existence here is not random chance. Pay attention And Chase, if you're listening, this is for you, buddy. So the question today is, what is the probability that you exist? What is the probability that you exist? Not you as a human, but you as a person, an individual in your current form, sitting in a chair at Church 214 on Sunday, May 1st. You as a person, what is the probability that you exist? Heidi Bolt, Dave Little, Mike Crowey, so on and so forth. Every person in this room, what is the probability that you exist? Well, in order to understand the probability that you exist, we have to, well, first start with your parents, right? So let's, let's do some math. So we'll kind of go through this fast. I'm going to have to read from my notes a couple times because the numbers are pretty complex and they're unbelievably large. We're going to round a few of these numbers, but you'll see at the end of this, it doesn't matter. We could round to the billionth degree. It's not going to matter. So let's say with your parents that from the age of 15 to 40, each one of them was able to meet one new person every day. That's a pretty good statistic, right? One new person, you meet one new person every day. If you do that, that's approximately 10,000 people. But... Let's confine the pool of people that they met 
to one-tenth of the world's population approximately 20 years ago. Now, some of us, many of us are older than 20 years. But the point is, is that we're going to look at the world's population 20 years ago, which was 400 million. So one-tenth of 400 million, or excuse me, 4 billion. One-tenth of 4 billion is 400 million people. Since we're talking about conceiving a child, we have to have one man and one woman. And so half of that is 200 million. 200 million people. And so 10,000 divided by 200 million people is a 1 in 20,000 chance that your parents met. Simple math. And by the way, if you want this math, this isn't my math. This has been done by some of the most brilliant minds in all the world. I'd be happy to share my references with you. 1 in 20,000 that your parents met. So far, so good. But now, they can't just meet. I mean, they can just meet. But for our story, they had to meet and talk. Let's say 1 in 10 chance. Then they had to meet and talk again and go on a date, 1 in 10 chance. Then they had to stay in the relationship long enough to conceive you. Again, let's say it's 1 in 10. So you take those probabilities. The probability that your dad and your mom conceived a child is 1 in 2,000. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a number of these different probabilities, and at the end, we're going to multiply them all together because that's what you do when you're looking at dependent probabilities. You have to multiply them all together to get the final probability. So the combined probability that your parents met, they dated or courted if you're into that, and then got pregnant is a 1 in 40 million chance. Not long odds, but I mean pretty good. But now we have to talk about something else. Now we have to talk about eggs and sperm. And they come in large quantities, by the way. <laughs> if you're weirded out by me saying eggs and sperm from the pulpit, uh, the only thing I can tell you is that I'm sure Ms. Taylor could use some help in kids' church. <laughs> so you are the result, Biology 101, of one sperm and one egg coming together. A fertile woman will have over 100,000 eggs over the course of her lifetime. A fertile man will have around 12 trillion sperm. Like I said, large quantities. Since after the spouse goes into menopause, we're only going to look at about a third of those sperm. So let's just roughly say 4 trillion sperm. So the probability that one sperm with half your name on it and one egg with the other half of your name on it coming together to result in you is one in 400 quadrillion. The numbers are starting to get really large. And you'll see, as I said earlier, even though we're rounding and we're assuming variables, the numbers are going to get so large that it doesn't matter. The existence of you on planet Earth proposes another supremely unlikely and utterly undeniable chain of events. Mainly, namely, that every one of your ancestors, so we've conceived you, now we have to figure out 
what is the probability that every one of your ancestors, your grandparents, your grandparents' parents, your grandparents' parents' parents, and so on, all the way to the very beginning of time, is roughly 150,000 human generations, which a generation is about 20 years. And those people had to survive to reproductive age, every one of them. And if they didn't, you wouldn't be here. If any one of your generations in the lineage of Heidi Bolt didn't survive from the beginning of time to her today, she wouldn't be here. Instead, it would be probably her cousin Jethro, who she doesn't like anyway. <laughs> so in order to find out that number, the number of sequential generations to the beginning of time, that number is 2 to the 150,000th. Or if we converted the number, since we're doing in base 10, 10 to the 45,000th number. To give you an idea of how large this number is, that is 10 with 45,000 zeros behind it. Now, it's hard to understand these numbers, so I'll give you a comparison. Every known particle in the entire universe is estimated to be 10 to the 80th power. 10 to the 80th power. And that's if every known particle was also its own universe. That's how large the number is. 10 to the 80th power. And what we're saying here is the likelihood of you existing in your current form through all the generations from the beginning of time is 10 to the 45,000th power. Are you starting to get the right perspective? But let's think about it this way. We have to kind of go even just a little bit further. If all these different permutations and computations and dependent probabilities didn't exist, there would be a different variation of you sitting here today. Remember, we're trying to compute the probability that you exist as yourself today. And so in order to do this, we have to multiply the probabilities to get to our final number. All the probabilities that we just came up with, this is the number. 10 to the 2,645,000th power is the probability that you exist. And by the way, that number doesn't even take into account the probability of the origin of life. So those are two different things. The probability that you exist is different than the probability of the origin of life. The probability of the origin of life is what scientists calculate the likelihood that Earth exists in its current form. That number makes this number look tiny. And I won't even get into that number, but research it, Google it, look it up on YouTube. They have to take all these different variables and look at all these different things, and they take all the computations and they put them into supercomputers because supercomputers are the only thing that can do brute force, brute force math to the level that is required to compute that probability. Our human brains simply cannot comprehend the unlikeliness that we exist. And then, if you go even further, you have to start looking at the probability that after you were conceived, 
that every one of your DNA was able to replicate and build itself to perfection every time. Those probabilities, again, are staggering. And if you want an incredible book, I urge you to read The Language of God by Dr. Francis. He was an atheist at the outset. He was the chief doctor in charge of mapping the human genome. So this happened a few years ago where we took and we mapped every single DNA strand in the human genome and at the conclusion of his research, not only conclusively believed in God, but believed that Jesus Christ was the one way to God. To give you another example, the probability that you exist, 2,645,000, excuse me, 85,000 is the total number, is the likelihood that 2.5 million people, so roughly the size of San Diego, decided randomly to play a game of dice, every one of them. Every one of them had a trillion-sided dice, and on the first roll, all 2.5 million of them rolled the exact same number. That's the probability that you exist today. To put it this way, from Fred Hoyle, Cambridge University, an, ast an astrophysicist and mathematician, he says, a common sense interpretation, let me tell you, mathematicians and scientists, they don't like to use the word common sense. <laughs> common sense assumes too many things. A common sense interpretation of the facts, i.e. the observations, suggests that a super intellect, mathematician for God, has monkeyed with the physics as well as the chemistry and biology that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Dr. Paul Davies, another theoretical physicist, a excuse me, uh, theoretical physicist, the, rea the really amazing thing is that not that life exists on earth and that life on earth is on a balanced knife edge, but that the entire universe is balanced on a knife edge. It would be total chaos if any one of the natural constants were even off slightly. You see, even if you dismiss man as a chance happening, the fact remains that the universe seems unreasonably suited to the existence of life almost completely. Another quote, and I'm sorry to hit you with quotes, but these are too good not to, not to share with you. These are leading brains and minds in the science community. We are, by astronomical standards, a pampered, cosseted, charited group of creatures. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we would have never come into existence. And it is my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live. And finally, the Albert Einstein, the one and only author of General Relativity, the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in physics. The more I study science, the more I believe in God. And so what's my point? My point is this. A miracle is an event so unlikely that it would be almost impossible to exist. I think that we can all agree by the simple probability that you're here, the numbers that we've shared, by that definition, you and you and me 
and chase are miracles. We're miracles. There's no other way to look at it. The probability is so infinitely small that the human brain can't even understand the numbers that we're talking about. And yet here we are. Every day, a new baby comes out with a destiny and a calling and a purpose beyond just waking up and going to work and coming home and eating dinner and rinsing and repeating the next day. Do you think that we're called for more? If we're not a random occurrence, if we're not a probability that's 1 in 10 or 1 in 20, but 10 to the 2,685,000th power, do you not think that we're called for so much more? We are called for more. Of all the probabilities, the trillions and trillions of permutations that have to exist for you to be here, we are called for too much more and so much more. By the very definition, we are miracles. But God didn't just give us a brain. He gave us a brain, but He gave us a brain not just to believe in Him. He gave us a brain with the ability to have language so that we can pray to Him and communicate with Him and share in Him and commune with Him. He gave us a heart that shares His heart so that we can be compassionate and have empathy and mercy and kindness for the people around us. The God brain. It's a cute name, but it's kind of incorrect, right? It's not just the God brain. It's the brain that God gave us so that we could understand to the most minute perspective how important we are to Him. The God brain. Or maybe the Elohim brain. Or the Jehovah Jireh brain. Or the Jehovah Shalom brain. The one in 10 million to the 685,000th probability brain that you exist. A miracle above all miracles. Maybe we should act like we are the miracles that we are. Maybe we should look to things outside of ourselves. Maybe we should try to understand the perspective while impossible to ever see the full beauty of the painting that has been created by the painter. Maybe we should try our best to have a little bit of perspective to try to understand the miracle that we are. But let me share one other number with you. The number one. As in, the one God who loved us so much, His creation, that He sent His one and only Son to die for us. The one God, there's no other God like Him, the one God who was accused and beaten and crucified for you and for me. God, the, our Creator, the one who holds the stars in His hands, the one who breathed life into us, the one who spoke and light appeared is the same God who loves us, who created us for a purpose, and knows the likelihood that you exist and yet created us anyway. Would you pray with me? Father God,
in your word, it says, Worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. God, you love us in a way that we cannot even begin to understand. The probabilities that we exist are so infinitely small. And yet, here we are. You've created us for a purpose far greater than just waking up, going to work, doing the daily tasks. You've created us for reaching others. You've created us for loving others. You've created us to do great things in your name, Lord God. Lord, we pray that through today and through just the beauty that is all around us and your creation, Lord, that we would see that we are so much more than just a pile of atoms and molecules randomly joined together, that we are beautifully and wonderfully made in your image. Lord God, we thank you for your Son. Lord, we thank you that you thought enough of us to send him for us, to stand in our place, to stand in the gap for our sins. Lord God, I just pray that everyone here would walk from this place knowing that they are a miracle above all miracles, that their children are miracles above all miracles, that there is no randomness in the natural world, that you created everything for your purpose, in your purpose, and Lord, we are here to fulfill that purpose. Lord God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. Amen.